You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Well, this past week was a great week. Uh, took a group of our students down to Panama City Beach, Florida for a beach reach, and um, I have a feeling that we're going to have to get on uh, registering us early next year so that we can have enough space for everybody that's going to want to go with us next year. But it was a great trip. There's a lot of stories that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to share with you, and I know you'll hear a lot of those over the next coming weeks um, from me, from others. Uh, but, but the very last night of Beach Reach this year uh, was, was so frustrating for me, um, and it was so stupid. It was just me being stupid. But, you know, we, we were leaving Friday morning to drive all the way back. It's about a 13-hour drive, 15 hours with stops, which, by the way, my team, uh, we split into three teams. Team A, uh, my three vans, <clears throat> we only stopped twice on the 15 hours back because we, uh, we are baller status like that. So anyways, we, we left 30 minutes later than all the other teams, and yet we still beat everybody by like an hour getting back. So we might have been speeding a little bit too, but anyways. Uh, the, the last night, I was really frustrated because uh, the plan was for us to all, all of the drivers to be off of the vans in the streets by, uh, by midnight, um, instead of going till 2 a.m., 3 a.m., like we'd been doing all week. And uh, so, the, like, I was very adamant about telling our drivers, you, I want you in bed by midnight, off the streets by midnight, in bed soon after. <clears throat> and so, uh, we had communicated that to the Beach Reach base. They weren't supposed to give us any assignments past that. Well, I, I get an assignment. My van gets an assignment at 11.16. I went back and checked my phone because the assignments were coming through my phone. Uh, I got an assignment. We got an assignment at 11.16 uh, p.m. And they, they told us, you know, I'll give you a little context here. The strip is about, I, I want to say like five miles um, worth of clubs, bars, condos all along the beach. And so our pickups are anywhere along that five miles. And we'll pick them up wherever they are, take them wherever they want to go within that five-mile range. And so we were actually on the east side of the strip when we, got this, uh, when we got this assignment, and they told us that the pickup was on the west side of the strip. Now, with traffic like it was that night, it takes 20 minutes or so, give or take, you know, 5, 10 minutes off that to get to the other side of the strip. And so we drove all the way to the other side of the strip. Now, I've got a navigator. Every van has a navigator, and, and, and that night I had a great navigator, um, <clears throat> except on this one, uh, one, one drive. She's sitting over here. I'm not going to call Courtney out like that. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, it's not her fault. It's not her fault. They gave us bad instructions. But uh, anyways, so uh, my navigator's telling us where to go, and I'm just trusting my navigator. You know, that's hard for me to do. Um, and I was like, you know, I'm going to trust her tonight. And so I'm trusting her all night, trust her this moment. Now I'm back to not trusting my navigators. But she, uh, she takes us, she takes us into this like super dark, shady, neighborhood, like you don't make pickups in neighborhoods. We're like in the middle of this like neighborhood with all these stray cats and stuff running around with like, which like stray cats is like the ultimate evidence of a, of a shady neighborhood because anybody who like doesn't care about, uh, you know, the, the, the reckless multiplication of, of stray cats, like they're shady and they're probably dealing drugs. So we're, we're driving through this uh, shady neighborhood with, with, with shady stray cats and probably drug dealers. Mind you, we're in a, a black 15 passenger van um, that, that had, you know, earlier in the week it had shoe polish on the side that was very nicely written, free rides on Vanna, Montana, which not that that's not shady, but eventually it rained and it just scuffed all that off. And so now it's just like dripping, you know, shoe polish that doesn't say anything. So the only assumption people had, I'm sure, was it used to say free candy. So we're in this shady neighborhood <laughs> in a black 15-passenger van. It's dark outside. There's stray cats running around everywhere. 
and we're clearly not in the place that we're supposed to be. We've driven about 25 minutes uh, to the other side of the strip. So we call the base, and we try to figure everything out, and eventually what we figure out is our pickup is actually on the complete other side of the strip, all right? So now it's like 1140, all right? So I'm supposed to be in bed in 20, 25 minutes or so. So our pickup is on the complete other side of the strip, actually the farthest you can possibly go on the other side of the strip. Now, we're almost as far as you can possibly go on the west side of the strip. Now we're going to the east side of the strip. And so it takes us about 30 minutes to get over there. So by the time we get over there, it's already past midnight. And I'm, I'm cranky because I still, you know, we, we, we've got to pick up some other folks. Anyway, so we get over there, and our people come down. And to make it even worse, like, you know, the goal of this is, you know, to, to get people where they want to go and everything, but we want to have conversations. You know, we're not going to lock the door, all right, and, and like not let people out until they accept Jesus. That's not how it works at all. <clears throat> but we want to talk to people. We want to have a chance to share our faith in a very, you know, casual way. Well, these two guys that get on our van are just like so wasted drunk. And so now I'm extra mad because I'm like, okay, it's, it's 12, 10, 12, 15 now. It's pointless, really. Uh, and it's not pointless because we're getting them where they want to go safely and they needed that. Uh, but we're not going to be able to share the gospel with them because they're drunk out of their minds. And so now, and in, in, in the, in the assignment said we're taking them a mile down the road. But they tell us, no, we actually want you to take us to the other end of the strip. So now we're going back to the west end of the strip. And, and, and so another 20 minutes, and it's like 1230 when we finally drop them off. So I'm just hacked. And so we're driving back now to our hotel. And, you know, we've been in, in the vans for about four or five hours at this point. And so uh, some of our riders were, like, about to bust their bladders open. So we're, we're, like, we're like, literally, like, two minutes from our hotel. And they're, like, screaming, hey, we, I, I've got to stop, go to the bathroom. I'm about to pee all over my seat. So we stop at McDonald's, and they get out and go to the bathroom. Well, while they're getting out to go to the bathroom, I get a text message. Um, I get a text message from a spring breaker that the night before I'd given my number to. Now let me back up and give you a little context here. So there's this guy, it was probably on Sunday or Monday night, so early in the week, that I was at one of the clubs in my van waiting on a pickup. And this guy comes to my window, and he and I just start talking. And, and so we're, we're, we're talking, shooting the breeze. He never got on my van. He never rode with us throughout the week. But we just kind of, you know, just connected talking about sports and stuff. Well, the night before this last night, so on Wednesday night, I pull up in that same spot, and he's there again. Um, and so I, we both recognize each other. So we start, we start chatting again. And, uh, and he, again, he wasn't getting on my van, but we just start striking up a conversation, talking about stuff. And it was just weird that, you know, we both recognize each other. And so I don't remember everything that led to this part of the conversation, but he was like, he was like, man, I wish that I had called you guys to ride with you guys. You seem super cool. We should, you know, it'd be fun to just talk more. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, you know, I, I didn't do this all week except for this one guy. I felt like the Lord was saying, hey, just do this. So I, I was like, Here, here's my cell phone number. Um, our last night's tomorrow night, Thursday night, and so if you want to ride, just shoot me a text, I'll come get you. But, I told him, but if you text me on this number for a ride, and I come get you, then there's one thing that has to happen. You have to let me tell you the story about how Jesus completely changed my life. And he looks at me, he's like, dude, I'd love to hear that story. And I was like, all right, well, text me tomorrow night. So now fast forward to the next night, Thursday night. I'm already hacked off because it's 1230, and I got some of my van people at McDonald's trying to fight through the lines to go pee, two minutes from my hotel, two minutes from my bed, and I get a text message from this guy. And he's like, bro, I'm so sorry I didn't text you earlier in the night. I really wanted to ride around with you. Now, he didn't say he wanted to ride then. He knew that we were going to be off the streets at midnight. So now I'm sitting there thinking, man, I could go to bed, or I could offer to go get this guy. And I'm like, dad, gummit, man, this is the worst. I want to go to sleep. So I text him back, and I was like, yeah, bro, that's too bad. And before I sent it... <laughs> 
Before I sent it, I literally sat there for like five minutes contemplating. Do I tell him, hey, man, where are you at? I'll come pick you up. So I, I, I didn't say I'll come pick you up, but I said, where, where are you at? And I thought, you know, if he's close by, he's probably far away, so it won't make sense to go get him. So I was like, where are you at, man? I'll come pick you up. And he immediately texts back, and he says, I'm at Coyote Ugly, one of the clubs, which is literally like next door to McDonald's. And so I'm thinking, well, that backfired. So uh, I was like, all right. Um, so I texted him back and I said, hey, man, I know, I know, I, I, you know, it's late and everything, but if you, if you want, I'll come pick you up. It's just going to be me because I'm about to go drop my team off at, at, the, at the hotel. So I never hear back. So I go drop the team off at the hotel. Hope you're still with me. The story's getting long. But I, I drop the team off at the hotel. I never hear anything back from him. And so I'm thinking, well, I guess, you know, he really didn't, he was just trying to be nice and he's probably drunk, drunk texting me, whatever. So I put everything up and I go up to my condos. Now, uh, I looked at my phone. It was 1.15. 115, I got my PJs on, not that, it, anyways, I got my PJs on, and uh, that got awkward, uh, and, and I, I, I'm literally like, I'm getting in bed, and my phone starts ringing, and it's this guy calling my phone, and I'm like, ah, oh, like, I totally know what's going to happen, and uh, so I'm like wrestling as it's ringing, and I'm waiting to answer it, I'm like, okay, Lord, what do I do, and the Lord's like, dude, why are you asking me that stupid question, of course you're going to go pick him up, so anyways, I pick it up, and he says, hey man, sorry I didn't text you, yeah, I'd love to ride. So I'm like, oh. so I go put on my, I put on my clothes and I run to the van and, uh, and I pick him up about, it's about 1.30 when I pick him up. And uh, it was just me and him. We drive over to the Walmart parking lot, which is right next door to Coyote Ugly and a great location for a club. <coughs> and uh, we just sit there in the parking lot for like an hour. And, and man, it was an incredible conversation. I mean, this guy, this guy wanted to hear how Jesus had changed my life. And so I got to tell him how Jesus has completely changed my life. And there's a lot of things that we talked about. Um, basically where the conversation ended was um, he, he realized at the end he was the person who is dead in his sin. And, and so like not, if, if there is heaven, if there is hell, he would not experience eternal life in heaven. He, he came to that conclusion um, but was unable to move beyond that at this point. However, he and I have still been talking since then. Um, I, I took him back to his condo to make the, funny, uh, the story a little bit funnier, at least for me and what God was trying to do in my life. Uh, his condo was actually on the furthest uh, east side of the strip. Um, so now I'm going back through traffic. I get home about, uh, I get back to the condo about 3 a.m. And uh, there's something that he said that has stuck with me. You know, as we're sitting there talking, he's like, I don't even know why I'm here. You know, the only reason I came, he said, is because my friend's kept telling me, I think he said his cousin kept telling him that at some point in his life, he's got to experience Panama City Beach during spring break. You know, the only reason he came is because everybody around him was saying, dude, at some point in your life, before you die, you've got to go to Panama City and you've got to experience spring break there. And I'm thinking about what he's saying. I'm thinking about that message that he was hearing from, from the world around him, similar to a message we're always hearing. Culture preaches the message that you only live one time. You only live once, and you therefore have to cram all of these experiences into this life before you die. Culture lives by the mantra, drink, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. They, the world around us lives to postpone their funeral because to them, that's it. Like, there's nothing after that. But we preach something completely different. We preach that Jesus changes everything. We preach that in Jesus, we have more than a funeral to look forward to. 
We preach that in Jesus we have a future. We have eternal life. We have this resurrection to look forward to. And you think about those two messages, the message that culture is preaching and the message that Jesus is preaching, the, the message that we preach, and they are completely different from each other. They're totally different worldviews, and, and a worldview is what shapes everything that you do. It's, it's what shapes like the reasons behind everything that you do, and it's completely different worldviews, completely different messages, but there's this question that keeps bug in my heart. So culture preaches this, we preach this, they're drastically different, but are we living any different than the rest of the world? I mean, if we truly believe what we preach, then our lives should look drastically different. I mean, how many of you who went to Panama City Beach for beach reach, you're sitting in a van or you're out on the street and you're talking to that person and they're drunk as a skunk and as soon as you say Jesus, they immediately say, oh, bro, I totally believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You can't help, and right, <coughs> rightfully so, you can't help but doubt that what they're saying about themselves is really true. I mean, the reality is they are living a lie. But it's, it's, it's not just those who say they believe in Jesus and then go party in Panama City Beach for spring break that are living a lie. It's those of us who say that we believe in Jesus, say that we believe in this future eternal life offered to us through Jesus, saving us from our sins, yet we continue to live in the fear of death. We are living a lie if we say we believe in Jesus, yet we continue to not consider how our decisions now affect our future eternity, how our decisions now affect somebody else's future eternity. We are living a lie if we say that we believe in Jesus, but we continue to live such conservative, shallow, self-centered lives that in no way show that we have this hope in the future eternal life that we say that we believe we have in Jesus. If we're going to preach that Jesus changes everything, you have to ask the question, has he changed you? Are you living your life right now in light of the future that you have in Jesus? Or are you living your life simply to postpone your funeral? There's a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you may have heard of him. He said this, no one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that moment. Waiting and looking forward to being released from bodily existence. This is a guy, he grew up in Germany. This is a guy who by the age of 21, he had already earned his PhD. He moved to New York City. This is in the, this is in the 1930s, 40s. Uh, right before World War II, <clears throat> he moved to New York City to pursue another degree, was here for nine months. In that nine months, this is a, you know, white German dude, okay? In that nine months, he discovers this African-American church in Harlem. And at that point, I mean, it was like you had African-American churches, you had white churches, totally separate. But he discovers this African-American church in Harlem, and he starts going there because he's like, man, this is, <laughs> these people love Jesus. And so he starts going there, and he eventually uh, is leading a Sunday school class there. He's totally rooted in that church, and God completely changes his life. And then after nine months, he goes back to Germany. When he gets to Germany, this was all during the time when Hitler was coming to power. 
And when he gets back to Germany, Hitler uh, had, had come to power. And, and long story short, Bonhoeffer joined the efforts to do whatever he could to fight for the lives of the Jews and everybody else who were being merc- mercilessly murdered. And he did that even if it meant uh, trying to assassinate Hitler. And the result was Bonhoeffer was arrested and eventually executed uh, by hanging at the age of 39. When he met Jesus, this is a guy whose life had probably more promise than any of us in this room. But this guy, when he met Jesus, Jesus changed everything. I mean, he was no longer living to simply prepare for or postpone his funeral. He was living in light of his future. Jesus changes everything. When we truly meet Jesus, we immediately become homesick. But instead, many of us claim to believe in Jesus, yet we continue to hold on to the things that this life offers us with these white-knuckled, relentless grips, not being willing to let go and grab hold of the true life that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. You look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. <clears throat> verse 12, Paul writes, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? I mean, listen to these words. Paul says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you live your lives as if there is no resurrection of the dead? If we say that we believe in Jesus and believe that he died and rose again, how can so many of us live like we're preparing for our funeral instead of living in light of our future in Christ? You read on verse 13, and he says, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. (coughs) Excuse me. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's weak, it's dead, it's stupid, it's worthless, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, those people who've died before you, they're dead, they're just dead. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Our lives don't make sense if Jesus rose from the dead, yet we're just living to postpone our funeral. That doesn't make sense. In the same way, our lives don't make sense if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, yet we continue to live in light of a future resurrected life in Jesus. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Did he raise from the dead or did he not? If he rose from the dead, that is a massively huge game changer. I mean, you think about all the things that Jesus said. I didn't, I didn't write these in my notes. Um, but you think about all the things Jesus said. Flip to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 19. I just want to look at some of the crazy stuff that Jesus said. If Jesus rose from the dead, you've got to believe everything that he said. And you look at what he said, it's nuts. Jesus, uh, uh, John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
the Jews said, it, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. He's pointing at the temple, or he's not pointing at the temple. They're outside the temple, and he says, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews think that he's talking about this massive temple to God that they've built and took him forever to build. But Jesus wasn't talking about that. It goes on to say that Jesus was talking about his body. So he's saying, listen, kill me, and in three days, I'll resurrect from the dead. He's prophesying, he's prophesying his own resurrection. John chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 13, talking to the woman at the well. And he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says that he is able to give us eternal life. Who says that? Who says that and isn't called absolutely out of their mind, crazy, weirdo, unless, unless, they die and raise again from the dead, proving that they have power over life. You look at John chapter 6, verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35, and it's, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. You fast forward to verse 14, it says, for this is the will of my Father, in other words, God, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's saying, I've got the power to raise people from the dead. That's crazy. You look at John chapter 8, verse 24. John 8, 24, and he says, I, tell, I, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, referring to the Savior of the world, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's no bolder statement of Jesus in Scripture. John 8, 58, <coughs> Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what he's doing there, we don't understand unless we understand the broader scope of Scripture. He's going all the way back to the Old Testament when God would refer to himself as the I am. In that verse, Jesus says that he is God. John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 10, 30. John 10, 30, Jesus says very simply, I and the Father are what? One. What's he saying? Hey, guess what? I'm God. Nobody says that. Jesus said that. If Jesus truly did resurrect from the dead, you have to believe what he said. You go on, John chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, this is where uh, he calls himself the resurrection and the life. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He calls himself the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, what does that say? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, he says. There's these powerful, bold statements. So if Jesus rose from the dead, that's a huge game changer and essentially confirms everything that he said about himself. And it gives us the freedom to abandon all of our current conservative ways of living, approaches to life, and to recklessly follow him. Just like he says to the disciples multiple times, give up everything and follow me. Like there's no reason to do that unless he's who he says he is. There's no reason to do that unless he truly rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, it changes everything. If he didn't rise from the dead, then our best option is to stop following him 
and do everything we can to indulge in this life now, to get the most out of this life now, because when we die, that's it. It's over. If he didn't rise from the dead, yet you continue to follow him, just as Paul says right here, chapter 15, verse 17, or 18, or 19, actually. Just like he says in verse 19, you are to be pitied more than any other human on this earth if you're following Jesus and he didn't rise from the dead. So did he really rise from the dead or not? You know, I think I've shared this story with you before. <coughs> a couple years ago, um, in one of my seminary classes, I was told I had to write a paper on did Jesus resurrect from the dead or not. And I'm a procrastinator, so it's like the night before the paper's due, and it's like one in the morning, and I'm writing this thing. And somewhere probably around like page 19 or 20, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I just had this incredible incredible moment, like life-changing, landmark moment for me. I'm, I'm writing there, I'm sitting there writing, okay, did Jesus really resurrect from the dead or not? And I've, I've been researching all this stuff, and it was in this moment, like honestly, for the first time in my life, and this was just a few years ago, I've been in ministry for like five years already. It's like the first time in my, my life, it hit me, like Jesus really rose from the dead. I mean, you look at all of the circumstantial evidence that is there, and there's, there's really no other conclusion to come to except that Jesus really rose from the dead. And, and I hate admitting this because I'm not a very emotional guy, but like I just, I couldn't control myself. And it's like one in the morning, and that took me everything not to call my professor at one in the morning, so instead I emailed my professor who, I, this is an online course, I hadn't met him face to face, so I'm sure to this day he thinks I'm a creep, but I emailed him at like one in the morning, uh, also giving away the fact that I had procrastinated on this paper, paper leaving it till the last minute. But I was like, dude, I, I, I really do think I started the email that way. Dude, I, this is incredible. Jesus really rose from the dead. And I started thanking him for making me write like this 25-page paper, which was, I do regret that, but it was this incredible moment in my life. And, and so what I want to do from here is, is show you how everything in this book rises or falls based on the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, if he rose from the dead, you are crazy not to fall on your knees right here, right now, and trust in him with everything you have. If he truly rose from the dead, you're crazy not to do that. If he truly rose from the dead, you are crazy not to stop everything you're doing and go tell everybody that you know who doesn't know that Jesus rose from the dead and make sure they know. If Jesus truly rose from the dead, you are crazy not to throw out all of your silly, selfish, honestly stupid goals and plans and ambitions and adopt God's mission, God's plans, God's purposes for your life. And I want to show you, I believe, evidence that confirms that Jesus rose from the dead. Seven things that happened after the resurrection that give you reasons that you should believe that it's true. It's circumstantial evidence. In other words, we don't have video of the actual resurrection, uh, but we have like fingerprints, basically. Like, like circumstantial evidence, you may not have video of the instance, but you have fingerprints. That's circumstantial evidence that points to the fact that it happened. And we have a bunch of circumstantial evidence. So the first, is, did that make sense? Okay, the first is this. One is... Women discovered the empty tomb. Now, why is that circumstance, why is that evidence for this, okay? Um, women had almost no social status, <coughs> had almost no status in society. And they were not allowed to testify in court. And you look at the accounts in the Gospels, and you look at the accounts of history, and it shows that, that it was women who discovered the tomb. If someone was going to fabricate a story, it would not be built around two women discovering the empty tomb. 
At this point in their culture, that would, that would not work. These women would never be able to speak for themselves in court. So the fact that, the fact that these guys are telling of the resurrection and they say it's two women who discovered the tomb is evidence that what happened really happened. The second thing, before Jesus' resurrection, the disciples were cowards. I don't know how familiar you are with scripture, but if you read what happens, I mean, Peter's, I think, the best example. I mean, this is the guy who looked Jesus in the eye and said, bro, I'll follow you to the death. And just hours later, this little girl comes up to him and says, are you the one who's following Jesus? And he freaks out like this little girl's gonna Chuck Norris him or something and says, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. It happens two more times within just a short time span. And, and, and three times in a row, he says, heck no, I'm not following Jesus. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yet what happens after Jesus' resurrection and Peter and these other disciples encounter the resurrected Jesus? History shows us that all of them were martyred for following Jesus. The same guys who scattered, you look elsewhere in scripture and it says they all scattered when he was arrested. The same guys that scattered in fear followed him to the death. And then you look at the early church. Christians, the early church Christians were persecuted in unbelievable ways. So before Jesus' resurrection, the disciples were cowards. That changed after he resurrected from the dead. The third thing, worship changed. So prior to Jesus dying and resurrecting from the dead, these Jews, these super religious Jews who were worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, they worshiped on Saturdays because that was what the law prescribed. Jesus died on a Sunday. And so immediately after his resurrection, I'm sorry, Jesus resurrected on a Sunday, died on a Friday, resurrected on a Sunday. Immediately after his resurrection, they changed the day that they worshiped on. Now think about this. Like you see all over scripture how rooted in tradition these Jews were. You think about churches today. Churches that are super rooted in tradition and you try to make a change. What happens? I mean, people freak out. And some churches split. I mean, crazy stuff happens. And, and, and here, this is a massive change. It was more than just preference. It was law. And yet, just like that, they change. But it wasn't just the change of the day. It was the change of, superficially at least, who they were worshiping. Because these wor- people were worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. And Jesus was killed because he claimed to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Yet, after his resurrection, who does the church's worship suddenly center around? Jesus. And the reason for that is because they weren't changing who they worship, they were acknowledging that Jesus is God. They were acknowledging that Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Fourth, fourth evidence is Jesus' family worshiped him as God. I mean, you see in scripture, you see in history that prior to Jesus' death, his brothers, uh, James and Jude, thought, thought Jesus was crazy. In fact, it shows us that his family thought he was crazy. And, and I, I mean, think about this. Like, uh, most of you probably have brothers, sisters, or you have moms, dads. Like, you, you know everything about your family members. You know, like, if you're, <clears throat> your, your family members, like, some people might think, people, outsiders might think, like, oh, you're perfect. Like, if you're, like, if you're dating somebody, you might be so infatuated with that person that you think that girl is just perfect. Or that, you think that lady, you think that guy is just perfect, right? You're just like, oh my gosh, I'm swooning over this person. And, and, and you think they're perfect. But all you got to do is call their brother or sister up. <laughs> send them a Facebook message and say, hey, give me some dirt on this fool. 
And, and, and not only are they going to give you the dirt, but they're going to gladly give you the dirt because they have grown up with this person. They've been pestered by this person. They've seen every little detail about this person. And, and James and Jude and the rest of the family of Jesus, they had every reason to not believe that Jesus is God. But after his, after his resurrection, that completely changed. James and Jude and his family began to worship Jesus. In fact, James and Jude wrote books of the Bible. James and Jude became key leaders in the early church. Fifth evidence, Jesus' enemies worshipped him. You know, there's a lot of examples here of this, but Saul's probably the, the, the main one. Saul was trying to kill Christians until he met the resurrected Jesus. And what happened when he met the resurrected Jesus? Instantly, he was changed. Instantly, his life mission and purpose and direction completely changed. And, and Saul changing his name to Paul, which was common for them to do in midst of life change, uh, spiritual change. But he now becomes the like, key man that God uses to expand his church, the early church. Wrote most of the New Testament. <coughs> Jesus' enemies worshipped him. Sixth evidence is the church exploded. I mean, it grew unbelievably rapidly. I mean, you consider all of the things that were standing against them. Um, persecution, but not just persecution. You look at the lack. I mean, today we've got internet, we've got great modes of travel, um, but they didn't have any of that stuff. We, they didn't have telephones, they didn't have any of that stuff. And yet the church exploded unbelievably, even uh, with the barriers that they had. Seventh evidence is this, a body was never found. Seventh evidence that, that Jesus truly rose from the dead is a body was never found. In fact, <coughs> no one today is really sure where Jesus' tomb is because no body was ever found. And that's a huge deal because you, you, you think about typically when religious leaders die, their tomb becomes enshrined. Think about Muhammad. Think about the Buddha. You know, these religious leaders, now people make pilgrimages to where they're buried. They pray towards where they're buried. That doesn't happen with Jesus. It doesn't happen because nobody's really sure where the tomb is. And the reason for that is because he wasn't there, he isn't there, he wasn't dead, he isn't dead, and the tomb didn't matter anymore, and the tomb still today doesn't matter anymore. But, but let's, let's, let's kind of wrestle with this seventh one a little bit more. So the tomb was empty. You know, what really happened? You know, there's about, there's about five main arguments over why the tomb was empty. Six, really. The six being, well, it's empty because Jesus rose from the dead. But there's five other seemingly really good arguments for why the tomb is empty. Now, I want to give you these really quick. First is this. Some say the disciples stole the body. This is theft theory number one. Some say that the disciples of Jesus went and stole the body of Jesus. So basically to convince people that he rose from the dead. But there's some serious problems with this. The first is, Scripture shows us that the disciples did not even yet understand that Jesus was supposed to raise from the dead. So why would they go steal his body to convince people he had risen from the dead when they didn't even know that that was what was supposed to happen? Second issue is, they were so emotionally distraught and there was so little time to plan, yet in order to steal the body, they would have had to have put together like this crazy, devious, and strategic, and incredible plan to get to this tomb that was heavily guarded basically by the Navy SEALs of, of, of their day. And, and these disciples, we know just from reading scripture and looking at history, they weren't like these superstars. <coughs> Most of them were fishermen, so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how that would work, you know. 
If the disciples stole the body, why would almost all of them have died such terrible deaths for something they knew was a lie? So that's the first theory. You can go with that if you want. Second theory. Some say the enemies of Jesus stole his body. That's theft theory number two. Some say the enemies of Jesus stole his body. But, but think about this. Why would they steal the body but not take the body and parade it through the streets to get people to shut up and stop preaching this message that Jesus has re- had resurrected? Why would they steal the body but not immediately put it on display to prove that Jesus was dead? All they had to do was show the body and the preaching would stop. The church never would have gotten where it is today. Matthew chapter 28 actually shows that the Jewish leaders, they paid off certain people to circulate rumors that the disciples had stolen the body. So I don't know. You can go with that one if you'd like. Uh, Third theory is the wrong tomb theory. Some say that uh, in the midst of all of the chaos, in the midst of the fact that it was the early morning, these, these women who were first at the tomb were emotionally distraught, and there were a lot of tombs in this area. Some say that the two women actually went to the wrong tomb. And when they got to that tomb, it was empty. <coughs> so again, just clarify what I'm saying here. People are saying that, okay, so these women, I think this is honestly a sexist theory. But they're saying that these women went to this tomb, were too emotionally distraught, and were too confused by the fact that there's all these tombs around, and it was too early in the morning, so it was still dark outside, so they went to the wrong tomb. There's some problems with this, though. If the two women went to the wrong tomb, then that means that Peter and John also went to the wrong tomb. You know, you read that account, which I love, because as John writes it, he says, so Peter and I uh, went to the tomb, and I beat Peter there. I love how in the midst of such, like, emotion, he still includes the fact that he outran Peter to the tomb. But Peter and John went to the wrong tomb. If, if, if the two women went to the wrong tomb, then Peter and John went to the wrong tomb. If, if the two women went to the wrong tomb, then the angel of the Lord went to the wrong tomb. If the two women went to the wrong tomb, then the Jewish authorities went to the wrong tomb. The same Jewish authorities who assigned the Roman guards, the Navy SEALs of their day, to go guard Jesus' tomb. You would think they knew which tomb was the correct tomb. And if, if the two women went to the wrong tomb, then that also means that Joseph of Arimathea, who's the one who owned the tomb, eventually went to the wrong tomb, forgetting which tomb he actually owned. <laughs> so you can go with that if, if, if you want. That's the wrong tomb theory. Uh, the fourth theory is the swoon theory. So basically what that means is some, some say that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just swooned and was revived while in the tomb by the, by the coolness of the air and some of the spices that were put on him as they prepared his body. And then he set himself free. Now there's some problems with this. I mean, you know, it's a serious argument. And, and here's some serious problems with this. You know, I don't know if you remember, some of you weren't here for this, but uh, about this time last spring, I, I preached a sermon called um, The Cross Isn't Cute. The cross wasn't cute. Um, it was sometime in March, I think, around Easter. And, and, and one of the things we discovered in that is that Jesus barely made it to the cross alive. So there's no way that Jesus made it off the cross alive. Um, in, in fact, Pilate was completely shocked when, when people came to tell him that Jesus was already dead because on average it took people two days to, to die uh, by crucifixion. Longest crucifixion on record is nine days. 
But Jesus was only on the cross for a few hours. Pilate was shocked. And the reason that he was only on the cross for a few hours is because he barely made it to the cross alive. And the Romans, they were experts in crucifixion. This was not their first crucifixion. This was like an ever, an, an, a common practice for them. They, and then they also had this, this test to determine whether or not somebody was dead. They pierced them in the side. And, and scientifically, like what, what is explained in Scripture and in history and how they would do that, like... You know, when the water and the blood would spill out, that's evidence that it's, the, the person has, has died. Um, Joseph and Nicodemus, they showed no doubt that Jesus was dead when they helped bury him. And, and just consider this. If Jesus had survived and escaped the tomb, then surely the wounds that he had sustained before going to the cross would still be showing. Now we know that the nail marks in his hands and feet, scar on his side was still there. But scripture gives us no reason to believe that all these other ridiculous wounds that he would have taken during his beating, uh, we have no reason to believe that those were still there after his resurrection. And, and if he had simply swooned and come back to life, you would think that those wounds would still be there, still showing. I mean, scripture tells us that he was beaten beyond recognition. So it's doubtful that his followers would have been excited to follow him to the point of death of themselves if he appeared to them in that awful state. I mean, if his followers thought that he hadn't really died, he just swooned, I don't think his followers would have then followed him to the death preaching that he had resurrected from the dead. And then lastly, there's no way that he could have freed himself from 75 pounds of linen, which is what would have been used to wrap him in preparation of his burial. There's no way that he could have opened the tomb from the inside and then snuck past the guards in the state that he was in. And there's no way that he could have walked about like he did if his body had been wounded like it had. Unless he was God, I guess. <laughs> so that's the swoon theory. And then the last theory. Some say all the people who claim they saw Jesus after his death, some claim that they were all hallucinating. This is the hallucination theory. You actually see this in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul talks about over 500 people after his resurrection, who Jesus appeared to. Now, scientifically and psychologically, there's a lot of problems with this theory. Hallucinations tend to be very individualistic. So they're based off of, like, individual people. So, so in other words, they're based off of an individual's past experiences, current emotions, and then what they hope will happen in the future. So considering the fact that Jesus appeared to 500 different people, and you can assume that amongst that 500 different people, there are, uh, there's a ton of diversity there. Um, there's a ton of different past experiences, ton of different current emotions, and a ton of different future desires. So to believe that all 500 of those people had the exact same hallucination at the exact same time is, is pretty hard to prove. And, and even if you can go with that, it still doesn't tell us why the tomb was empty. So the question is, did Jesus rise from the dead or not? I believe that we have every reason to believe that he did. Just like Paul says in Acts chapter 26, verse 25, he says, I'm not out of my mind, but I'm speaking in true and rational words. The reality is our faith is totally reasonable. Our faith is not absent-minded. Like you don't have to stop thinking to believe and put your trust in Jesus. And remember, if Jesus truly did resurrect from the dead, you and I are absolutely crazy not to fall to our knees right here and right now and place all of our trust in him. If Jesus truly did resurrect from the dead, then you and I are crazy not to stop everything we're doing and to go and tell everybody that we know who doesn't know Jesus about Jesus. 
And if Jesus truly resurrected from the dead, then we are absolutely crazy not to throw out all of our silly, selfish plans and adopt God's plans and God's purposes for our life. You go back to verse 12, chapter 15. And Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? You think about this. If Jesus proclaimed, was proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you live your lives as if there is no resurrection of the dead? We don't gather in here each week to mourn a dead man named Jesus. This is not a funeral. We gather in here each week to celebrate a living God named Jesus who promises us a future. And you can't believe that and stay the same. It's absolutely impossible. So here's the big question tonight. Are you simply living to postpone your funeral or are you living in light of your future in Jesus Christ? Think about this. <coughs> are you simply living just to postpone your funeral, just to prepare for your funeral, or are you living in light of the future that you have in Jesus Christ? We preach Jesus has cha changes everything, but has he changed your life? I mean, seriously. You know, here's where we fail in this. We, we start looking to the people next to us, and we, com we compare ourselves. We start looking at the people on campus, and we compare ourselves. And we, and we think one of two things. We either think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a PCB party and like some of the UNT people I ran into. Or we look at the person next to us who we say, yeah, they're following Jesus, when they may not actually be following Jesus. And we compare ourselves to them and we say, all right, I'm following Jesus. God has totally changed my life through Jesus. No, no, no. That's, the question is, based on the standard and the examples that we see in God's word, has Jesus changed your life? And the way that you live says everything about what you believe. And if you're not living in light of the future then you have to seriously question whether or not you believe in Jesus. The way that you live says everything about what you believe. And if you're not living in light of the future that you have in Jesus, then you absolutely have to question whether or not you truly believe in Jesus. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.